Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. It's good to be with you, and uh, we're just coming out of the Easter season, and there's a couple of things that that happened uh, that we looked at during the Easter season. Of course, Christ's crucifixion and what it means to us. And uh, he was our substitute who took our sins for us. Then we looked at the resurrection as we do every year. And in the resurrection, we find hope. Hope for, um, for, uh, hope for resurrection bodies, hope for a new creation. Uh, hope because we know that, that God the Father accepted uh, the payment that Christ made for our sins. And so we have hope that we are actually justified. He didn't just die and end up in the grave. And, uh, but there's a third great event that the prophets spoke about. And the, and the, and the prophets had prophesied uh, both the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, or the Messiah, the anointed one, anointed being, anointed with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but they they prophesied something else. They prophesied uh, that, that there would be a coming of the Spirit. And it was a promise. So we have forgiveness of sins on the one hand. We've got hope on the other hand. And then there was a promise made in the Old Testament of the coming of the, of the Spirit. And I've called it the gift of the Holy Spirit because Scripture actually refers to it as, uh, as that. And we'll see in a moment. So let's bow for a word of prayer. I'm very excited about what we're going to discover together in the Scriptures about the coming of the, the Spirit and His ministry. Father, thank you uh, so much for what we have really celebrated. Not just celebrated, enjoyed, but in, renewed our thinking and our hearts because of the forgiveness due to the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection and that there is a new day dawning. And thank you, Lord, for what we're about to discover here about this promise made throughout the Old Testament of, the, of uh, your drawing near through your spirit. And so uh, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to really grab our attention and cause us to sit up in our hearts and to um, take note of and worship you for this, but also to be changed because of these truths, beginning with the renewal of our minds, moving to our hearts and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's talk about the coming of the Spirit. You know, the God of the Old Covenant made himself known essentially through the Law and the Prophets. And then he became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And he drew nearer uh, to humans as he lived among them as, uh, as one of them. But with the advent of the Holy Spirit, he came even closer as the indwelling presence of God within the church and within their, their personal lives. Now, back in the time of the Old Testament... The Spirit only intervened sporadically and temporarily to enable select individuals to perform specific tasks like uh, prophecy or craftsmanship or leadership or that, that uh, sort of thing. 
and God's people yearn for the presence of God as seen in the dramatic exclamation of Isaiah. There's others, but, but here's an example of it in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and just come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. He was calling out for the presence of God. And the decisive answer to the age-long plea for the bestowal of the Spirit was finally given in a climactic prediction or prophecy made by the prophet Joel. That's the one that many people know. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. In fact, let's read it together, all right? Can you, can you read it? Is the font big enough? Yep. Uh, here we go. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And as seen here, the spirit would be available for everyone. The centuries rolled on, and still nothing happened. In fact, spirit activity went dormant. Then suddenly, some stirrings. In a village of Galilee, the spirit activated the womb of a virgin, Mary. And her cousin Elizabeth was filled with the spirit and called Mary blessed. Zachariah the priest was filled with the Spirit, and he prophesied. And then as the baby Jesus is, was brought to the temple, Simeon, inspired by the Spirit, took him in his arms and blessed God. The floodgates of heaven were beginning to shake for the great outpouring of the Spirit. Anticipation was growing. Then John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, who came in the Holy Spirit power of Elijah, heightened expectations. <clears throat> As the multitudes came to him, expecting fulfillment in him, he instead pointed to Jesus and declared, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The predicted great outpouring of the Spirit was now defined as the great baptism of the Holy Spirit that would be released by Jesus. And as if to prove him right, Jesus came to be baptized just a few days later. As he was coming out of the water, the Spirit came down upon Jesus in the manner of a dove. And we read in Luke chapter 4, but it's also noted in Matthew and Mark and in John. As Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. But he not only overcame great temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit, he also taught by the Holy Spirit, he healed in the Holy Spirit power, and cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Gospels tell us directly. Before Jesus' crucifixion, he had breathed on them the Holy Spirit. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What was this? It was an object lesson. Jesus was illustrating the complete identity that existed between him and the Holy Spirit that they were about to receive. That's why throughout the, script, uh, throughout the New Testament you'll see this interchange of, of titles, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, Holy Spirit, all referring to the same same person or same thing. And as the time drew uh, close, Jesus became more explicit about the event. Fifty days after the Passover, when Jesus had been killed, and only ten days after his ascension, large crowds gathered in Jerusalem from many other countries for the annual celebration of the Jewish uh, Pentecost. 
And on this day of thanksgiving for God's revelation, and and that's what they were celebrating, God's revelation, the law, and for his physical provision in the wilderness, the ascended Christ chose that day to pour out his ultimate gift, the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2.33. And we're going to read it now. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. A hundred and twenty disciples had gathered in Jerusalem for ten days to wait in prayer for the promise, just as Jesus had instructed them. And suddenly a hurricane sound came down from heaven. And the scriptures tell us, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a fascinating thought, that that's in the middle of that, of that passage. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The people in the room saw what appeared to be a bunch of flames coming down, splitting, resting over each person like tongues of fire. This actually happened. This is an incredible story. This is a true story. This is an account of what happened. And as a result of this baptism of the Holy Spirit, they were all filled with the Spirit. And they spoke in tongues. That is, language is not their own. About 12 of them. And we read, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And how they said, how is it that we hear each one in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues, languages, the mighty works of God. These were Jews or proselytes to Judaism. The Gentiles weren't here. The Samaritans weren't here. That would be for later. And they'd come from neighboring regions to celebrate the Jewish festival of weeks. And that's why it was just to to the Jews. And uh, these could understand the 120 speaking in their own native language. This it was not the spiritual tongues of 1 Corinthians 14. And people make a big error when they keep referring to this as proof that, that you've got to have tongues. Because, they, because that's a different kind of language. That's spiritual tongues. This caused quite a stir as the people wondered what all this meant. Peter then got up and preached a great sermon telling about Jesus and how the prophet Joel had prophesied all that had just happened. Oh, it must have been a day. That must have been a day. To kick up your heels. I mean, they had waited for centuries for this. The prophets longed to see this. They peered into the future and couldn't, just couldn't experience what they were longing for. Then he explained, Peter that is, how this related to Jesus' recent death and resurrection. And picking up in verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? See how Peter answers this. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for two things. For two things. Things, 
the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter assured all who were listening that anyone who would repent and believe would receive from God two free gifts, forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We must never conceive of salvation in purely negative terms as if it only consisted uh, of our rescue from sin, guilt, wrath, and, and, and death. Thank God it is all those things, yes, but it, it also includes the positive blessing of the, say it, church, Holy Spirit. Yet as wonderful as the event at Pentecost was, it fell short of fulfilling its promise that the outpouring of the Spirit would be on all flesh. It was on Jews and proselytes of Judaism. Because Jesus' ministry had been primarily to the Jews, those who received the Holy Spirit were all Jews. The belief grew, however, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a Jewish privilege denied to other peoples. With what I'm about to say, without that, you can't quite grasp what Paul's getting at in Ephesians when he says he's broken down the barrier between the Gentiles and the Jews and made them one. So follow carefully. So harsh was this racial prejudice that in direct disobedience to the command of Christ to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, according to Acts 1.8, the church remained in Jerusalem. <laughs> the apostles made no attempt to go beyond the city of Jerusalem, so the Lord used persecution to scatter them, uh, all the believers from, the, uh, from there throughout Judea and Samaria, and, to, and, and so, that, so that the gospel went everywhere. The Samaritans, a mixture of Jewish and Gentile blood, responded enthusiastically, and great numbers believed. But amazingly, None received the baptism of the Spirit until the mother church in Jerusalem sent the apostles Peter and John. They laid their hands on the new believers and were baptized with the Holy Spirit. The racial barrier against the Samaritans had finally come down. Amen. It's amazing. The Jewish Christian leaders needed to see this for themselves. That's why the baptism of the Samaritans waited their arrival. God made sure that the leaders of the church were there to witness it for themselves. How could they argue with that? But the church had not yet expanded and reached the Gentiles. Another racial barrier needed to come down, and God used the Gentile Cornelius, a Roman commander of the Imperial Legion's station in the city of Caesarea, to do it in chapter 10. Through special guidance, vision of a sheep, ceremonially unclean animals, remember how it came down? And the voice said, Peter, eat. And he said, I'll never eat that. And the voice said again, eat. And he said, I won't eat that. And uh, it's amazing that Peter was finally brought reluctantly to the house of Cornelius all because of that. And in a rather cold greeting, Peter started by telling the commander how wrong it was for a Jew like him to even enter the uh, Gentile household. <laughs> Can you imagine going to somebody unsaved and saying, I, I really don't want to be here, but God told me I had to. 
but that God had forced him to come. And then Peter utters this astounding statement, why did you send for me? Somebody just went, duh. That's about the right response. Here was Christ's commissioned apostle, the rock on whom Jesus would build his church. Aren't you glad that he uses people, just human beings? Sinful, human beings like you and me and Peter. It's not because of us, but in spite of us. Amen? Amen? Oh, my. Why? And, he, and, and uh, here he is, trained for, uh, by Christ for three years, has been ordered to preach the gospel to all nations, and he's asking, why did you send for me? How about, like, start preaching? <laughs> I can chuckle and laugh with this because I can identify with his shortcomings. So strong was the racial prejudice that it never occurred to Peter that he had been sent to these Gentiles to preach the gospel. And finally, it dawned on him because of the vision that it was proper to preach to the Gentiles because God wasn't a racist and and didn't show any partiality. So as Peter preached up a storm, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles just as he had done on the 120 Jewish believers at Pentecost and then later to the Samaritans. The Gentile racial barrier of hostility was coming down in order to make believing Jews and Gentiles one community in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians. Now, one of the reasons we don't totally get it is because we're so used to seeing some of that. I've traveled in many different countries and gone to many different churches many times with languages I didn't know, and instantly there was this connection. But that's not how the church started. The level of racial prejudice was so high that this amazed them. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. (laughs) Think about that. I mean, just stop and ponder that. They were absolutely floored that God would actually bless the Gentiles too. (laughs) And yet, you see it in the Old Testament. You're supposed to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. The goyim. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, say this with me, even on the Gentiles. Say, even on the Gentiles. Turn to someone next to you. Even on you, Gentile. As if the Gentiles were a subhuman species. Aren't you glad that he poured out his spirit even on the Gentiles? Praise the Lord. We weren't worthy, but he decided to anyway. I love that. When Peter returned to the church in Jerusalem, he was hotly criticized for this. However, they were silenced when he told them his complete story, explaining that the spirit baptism received by the Gentile converts was exactly the same spirit baptism as the Jewish converts had received at Pentecost. Never again, never again, would there be need for Gentiles to receive the Holy Spirit apart from the reception at conversion. God had demonstrated what he was trying to do. So why do the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit 
as a gift. Like, what's so special about him? Well, we could talk for a long time about that, but I'm just going to summarize it in three very quick points. First of all, his ministry to the world. John 16 says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you, are, uh, you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. It'd be, it'd be fascinating to spend a little bit of time here unpacking this all, but we can't. Not today. It's a, it's a broader overview that we're talking about today. The presence of Christ in the world was proof that God had not abandoned it to its sinful condition. Think about that, church. The presence of Christ in the world was proof that God had not abandoned the world to its sinful condition. An unbelieving world needed the ministry of Christ. Doesn't the world today need the ministry of Christ? Yes or no? How many of you have ever thought, and you don't have to raise your hands because you might get embarrassed, why did the Father ever take Jesus back? He should have just left him because the world would be a better place. But after his departure, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will see to it that the ministry of the gospel of Christ continues because sin will continue to thrive. Jesus was aware that the range of his ministry to the world was limited by his physical, localized nature. Through his death and resurrection, he would achieve redemption for the whole world, but he could not, as a person, take that redemption throughout the world. That would be left to the Spirit of Christ to do. He was to convince the world of sin and righteousness. The Spirit is not localized. His range of influence is universal. This was a brilliant strategy. He has not left us alone. God has not abandoned us. Neither has Jesus his Son. The Spirit of Christ is here. And while we are considering him here, in other places in the world, they've already been talking about him <laughs> and about the gospel and stuff. And he's working everywhere. Everywhere I go, he's there. And you sense his presence. And you can talk to him and he guides you and he speaks to you. And you see it in the in the gathering of the church, the local churches. Second is ministry to the church. Jesus had handpicked the 12 disciples at the outset of his ministry. During the three years, he attempted to band them together into a nucleus that would become the church. But the Gospels describe mercilessly <laughs> the failure of the disciples to respond to Jesus' efforts. Think about this. As he was teaching them the necessity of his sufferings and death, his disciples were arguing among themselves behind his back about which one of them was the greatest. Remember that? You see that in Mark 9? And when they were all traveling for the last time to Jerusalem, Jesus explicitly revealed to them the extent of the suffering awaiting him. And at that very moment, when he's talking about his passion, and how he's going to die for the sins of the world. At that moment, they interrupt him. Two of them interrupted them. 
and uh, with a power play scheme intended to secure their dominance over the other ten. Jesus denounced their craving for authority in Mark 10, and it seemed that the only thing Jesus could do with them was to pray to the Father for them. And we see his prayer in his high priestly prayer. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are, what? One. The prayer of Jesus for his followers to become a united community receives spectacular fulfillment at Pentecost. I didn't say final, but spectacular fulfillment at Pentecost. It really did. Overnight, a group of distraught and fitful disciples became a bold, motivated, organized, and united movement energized by God's Holy Spirit. Think about that. Maybe 60 days later, everything changes from these power-hungry guys who are, who are knifing each other in the back and trying to get to the top of the ladder to this united band energized by the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. This remarkable transformation has given a brief summary of the life of the church at its very beginning. We're going to read it in Acts chapter 2, 42 40 to 47. Think about it as you read it. Think about them on one hand, and now think about them on the other hand. And they devoted themselves, the Christians did, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's these 3,000 who got saved, plus the 120. To the breaking of bread and the prayers, awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. <laughs> they loved each other. They must have gone to the learn to love seminar or something. And they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they loved to be together. They loved being together. And they came from every strata of society, the wealthy and the non-wealthy. The troubled and the not troubled. Leaders and non-leaders. Workers. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Boy, when there's unity in a church, Amen. stuff happens. Amen. But unity in a church comes because of the unity of the Spirit. Wow. Well, there's a third ministry that we'll just briefly gloss over. His ministry to the individual shortly before his death. Jesus was talking to his disciples about his approaching departure from them, and their hearts were filled with sorrow. In order to comfort them, Jesus told them, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your what? Advantage that I what? Go away. They couldn't believe what he was saying. 
those words will have thrown them into a state of shock. Jesus was telling them that they'd be better off with the Holy Spirit than they presently were with him. Look at the second part of that verse. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus explained further that the Holy Spirit would carry forward Christ's ministry to them, but with an added plus. As long as Jesus was with the disciples, he was next to them. Despite their closeness, he remained another person exterior to them. However, when the Holy Spirit would come, he would take up residency within them. And since the Holy Spirit was really God's, uh, Christ's own spirit, they had nothing to lose in the exchange, only gain. Jesus, in the form of the Spirit, would still be with them, but also within them. This is what Jesus had already promised. He said, and I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. And what, church? will be in you. Oh my goodness. He had promised that he would not leave them alone. Nothing could be better than him being within them. It doesn't matter even when you are in prison. They can take you from your business. They can take you from your profession. They can take you from your home. They can take you from your marriage and your kids. But they can't take you from God. Because he drew so near that he's in you. People wonder, how do believers make it in these prisons? Because God is with them. He's in prison with them. He never leaves us alone. Is that an amazing truth, church? This is the promise that the Old Testament was looking forward to. And it happened. And we live on this side of the promise. Oh, how blessed are we. Wow. Nothing could be, be better than him being within them. From here, the Spirit of Christ would speak with them, and he would guide them. Listen to me. All this hearing God's stuff without the Holy Spirit is just nonsense. We talk about hearing God, listening to God. We're talking about the Holy Spirit when we're talking about that. He's the person agency through which we communicate with God. He, he would also sanctify them. That is, he would help believers to come out of the fallen human condition into a spirit-produced maturity described as the fruit of the Spirit. And Chris has been talking about this stuff in, the Roman, in this fantastic Roman series. And on top of all that, he would empower them and give them spiritual gifts for effective service and ministry. Wow, 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 is all I can say. It's incredible. Well, let's talk for a moment about this baptism and filling of the Spirit, because there's some confusion about it. What about the fact that the 120 received the Spirit subsequent or as a second experience after salvation? Doesn't it suggest there that there are two experiences a Christian needs? Salvation and then at the subsequent time, baptism in the Spirit? Let's examine this important question because much confusion division has resulted from a misunderstanding of what happened at Pentecost. 
Recall Peter in verse 38, he had clearly stated that the conditions of the promise were uh, uh, of forgiveness and the Spirit were simply belief and repent. Believe and repent. And that's precisely what happened. 3,000 believed and repented, and they received forgiveness and what else? And the Holy Spirit. This means that according to Acts 2, two separate companies of people received the baptism or gift of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. There were 120 at the beginning of Acts 2, then 3,000 at the end, or towards the end of Acts 2. The 3,000 do not seem to have experienced the same miraculous phenomenon, rushing mighty wind, we don't see that, no tongues of flames resting on their heads or speech in a foreign language. Yet because of God's assurance through Peter, they received the same gift. But there was a big difference between the two groups. The 120, like Old Testament believers, believed before the promise, uh, promised outpouring of the Spirit upon all believers at Pentecost, so though they had already believed, they had to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The 3,000, on the other hand, believed immediately after the promised outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and so received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit together because the Holy Spirit had already been poured out. No waiting was required. Now, wait a minute. Some, some of you might be wiggling right now in your seats. And getting just a little nervous about this. Don't head for the doors yet. In fact, ushers, lock the doors. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Because that's going to be on tape now. And I'll be in the news. Because we believed after the outpouring of the Spirit, we too received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit at the exact same time, just like the 3,000. Paul also made this clear. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith? The context makes it clear that this faith is a saving faith that he is talking about there. We don't have time to go there, but you can read it. Not some post-conversion act of faith for a second experience. That's not what he's talking about. Galatians 3, verse 9 and 11 says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by what? Faith. That's why Paul taught the church of Corinth, for in one spirit... We, are, we were how many? All. all. Say that again. Church, I mean resounding. All. all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all. all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, you might say it's convenient for you to use the ESV here uh, because that's what it says. Truth matters if you go to the NASB or the NIV. Um, it will say, for by one spirit. And which is a good reason that Chris would give for why you should be using the ESV. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but they have, marg they have margin notes. And if you go there and you, and you take a look at it, they recognize the problem. It's for in one spirit. It, 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 see, because this makes it appear like there's two different baptisms. One is... Is, Jesus is the agent of the baptism in the Spirit, and the other one, the Holy Spirit, is the agent. 
He's the one doing the baptism, baptizing. That is not what the Greek construction says. There are seven times where this little phrase shows up. Uh, let me see if I can remember this. Four in the Gospels, two in, the, in Acts, and one here in Romans. And they're, they're, they're practically identical phrases. All six have been translated as Jesus doing the baptizing. But in this one particular place, some of the translators have, have made it sound like the Holy Spirit is doing the baptism. So some have taken from that that there are two kinds of baptisms. But when you look at the Greek, you find out it's the exact same expression. You say, well, then why would some of the translators have, have done it? It's because, because there was two localizations in that verse. And I'll show you what I mean, because I don't think I even have it here. Uh, I wasn't going to preach on this, but my time is doing good, so I'll go for another hour. Uh, um, 12 verse 13, okay? So this is what it says. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, uh, whether Jew or Gentile, we were all given the one spirit. So it's saying uh, that, the, that the, uh, we were all baptized in the, in the spirit, but it says in twice, in two different things. And so the translators were trying to get away from those two two things in which we were being baptized because they thought it would be a little confusing, and so then they changed the, uh, uh, the word from, uh, to buy. But that actually created much bigger confusion. So you can take a look at it. I don't have the right translation to, to delve into that. I just, I just noted that now when I opened it. But anyway, um, that's what it is. Thus it appears that this is a different baptism and, and, and that is not true. This has caused some of the church to say there's two baptisms, one by Jesus and one by the Spirit, not so. And we, and we, uh, we explained that. Now, all were baptized in the Spirit as we already saw. How many? All. And it wasn't because there were only spiritual, non-carnal Christians in, in the church at Corinth. Not at all. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems. In fact, chapter 3, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Yet Paul said they were, uh, he said they were not spiritual, but carnal. Yet he said they all, all of them, had been baptized in the Spirit. The point is, you don't get the Spirit because you're good and spiritual. Because, see, many people have been running around with this, I've got the second baptism. And they wear it as a, badge of an, as a badge of honor. And it creates division in the church. And Southland has been called to be a bridge church for the evangelicals and charismatics. Amen. I believe that. You don't, receive, you don't get the Spirit because you're good and spiritual. No, you get the Holy Spirit so that you, a carnal believer, may become good and spiritual. Amen, Amen church? Amen. Yeah. That Christ may be formed in you by the Holy Spirit in you. Every single believer needs the Holy Spirit, and every believer has the Holy Spirit, period. In fact, Paul said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not, what? Belong to Christ. And every believer received 
um, the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion by something the Bible calls baptism in or with the Spirit. All who believe and repent receive two gifts, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable them to do God's will, live right and do, do God's will. This is still the norm today. But you say, aren't there subsequent experiences of the Spirit? Yes, there are. Haha, see? Now you can be happy and relax. They're just not called baptism of the Spirit, but filling of the Spirit. Now this is what happens at salvation. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the result of that baptism is that we are what? Somebody want to guess? We read it before. And I slowed down for that. Verse 4. Full of the Holy Spirit. That's what it says in Acts 2 at Pentecost. At the outpouring of baptism of the Spirit... They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that happened at Pentecost. And there it is, Acts 2.4. And you can tell that you're uh, full of the Holy Spirit because of the experience of the Holy Spirit at salvation. And now some of the initial experiences that people have at salvation, which I attribute to the Holy Spirit, we experience things we've never experienced before. Uh, everything changes in us. Some experience unbelievable joy. And some, for the next while, they can hardly go to bed at night. They're just bubbling. And they just want to witness in the middle of the night and, you know, find somebody wake them up or read the Bible or pray. Insatiable hunger. Uh, or there's a desire to worship. Or there's this witness with boldness. They talk to everybody. Or some suddenly find themselves speaking strange words or tongues. Spirit, the 1 Corinthians 14 kind. Others have a desire to repair relationships with former or present employers and, and employees or family members like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Or they might experience a victory over a sinful bondage or stronghold instantly. Not completely, because there's progressive revelation as we've been studying. Those are all the results of being baptized in the Spirit at salvation. We're full of Him, and this is what He does in us. Is it true? It's true. Is it true, church? It's true. Interestingly, we're instructed to continually get refilled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be continually filled with the Spirit. That word isn't in there, but the participle means it, should be, it could be translated like that. Be being filled or be continually filled or be refilled. And keep being refilled, just like your gas tank. you got to keep refilling it. At Pentecost, Peter was baptized. And we see this is exactly what happened to the Apostle Peter. At Pentecost, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Was he not? Yes or no? The result was that he was full of the Holy Spirit. short while later, he was arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and he was refilled with the Spirit again. And after, that's in Acts 4.8. And then after the release, they joined with the other believers to report what had happened and to pray and look what happens. And I'll just record, and, and I'll just show the one. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all, f all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter had just experienced his third filling of the Holy Spirit, beginning with his baptism, his initial baptism. Now, when older seasoned Christians sometimes see new believers respond with unbridled joy 
and going crazy and reading their Bibles and witnessing, they sometimes respond in a condescending way. They'll grow up or they'll, they'll grow out of it. But the older believer doesn't realize that the new believer is like that, not because they're immature in the faith, but because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They've got a whole different set of priorities. They've got a whole different way of living because the Holy Spirit isn't at all like human beings. So what the older believer actually betrays is that he or she is no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so what they are really saying is, I need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Without saying it, that's what they're saying. So why is this important to understand? First, it's created confusion and division based on an experience. Some well-meaning believers have directly stated or implied that some believers have the Spirit and some don't, the haves and the have-nots. Second, it has fostered pride. And some who have had a special Holy, experience, uh, Holy Spirit experience make them feel superior to those who haven't. But here's the third one, and it's a deadly trap. It has stunted the spiritual growth of some of those who have had an experience because they reason they must already be spiritual and mature in order to have received such a Holy Spirit experience. And because they're wrong, the devil has deceived them. And for the next 30 years, they keep pointing back to the time when they got saved, but more, they point back to that second time they they experience the Holy Spirit. And when they do, they don't think they need any more. But if they knew what the, the Scriptures actually say, that it's a refilling, and that they need to keep getting refilled, they wouldn't point back to something that happened 30 years ago. They'd fall on their face, they'd repent of their sins, they would humble themselves, and they would desire and ask and receive a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. And it would be different people. Would you agree? This is why many churches who have accepted the things of the Spirit have, have become hotbeds of confusion, carnality, and division. And that, in turn, has created other churches who have now reacted against that. And now they don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, basically, you're left with two kinds of churches that both are not operating in the Spirit. And it's time to come back to our rightful heritage and birthright and start acting like the early church did. The Holy Spirit is not, was not given to bring division. He was given so that God could move in with us and change us, and transform us, and empower us to take on the forces of darkness in these last days. So it's a labeling issue. So here's two rules. Number one, don't have, ever ask another believer if they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They have. Ask if they've been refilled. Now, a few people should be asked that question. Have you been refilled? Rule number two. If someone speaks to you about being baptized in the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience, be gracious to them. 
Don't go out of here now and say, I know the truth. You dumb idiot. I was baptized already. You just don't get it. No, don't do that. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Would you agree? Understand they're really talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit and smile nicely, not condescendingly, nicely. Okay? I'd like to conclude. October 30th, 2009, I led the 23rd Southland Set Free Retreat in Pinawa. We called it the encounter in those days. It would be my last. And as the Holy Spirit, uh, because the Holy Spirit had directed me to hand it over. The last session on Sunday at Pinawa was the Holy Spirit session, and I began it with the same illustration each time. I would like to close this morning with that illustration. And here is what I said. We like to talk about our strengths. Isn't that true, church? We like to talk about our strengths, not our weaknesses. Isn't, wouldn't you agree? But I'd like to talk to you about my weakness. I was having breakfast years ago with Chris, the uh, executive pastor in a local restaurant, when the Holy Spirit suddenly interrupted our discussion by speaking into my spirit. It, it came suddenly, it came without notice, and it caught me off guard. And this is what he said. Your greatest strength is your weakness. I sat there completely stunned. I was overwhelmed when I heard it in my spirit. Why was I overwhelmed? Because I had so long wrestled with this. I had prayed about it countless times. I knew some of my weaknesses. One of the weaknesses that I had really wrestled with was this issue of a poor memory. Forgetting names, details, messages I've preached what I've read. In fact, it got so bad at one point, this years ago, that when the church reached about 500 in prayer, I began to say, God, you need a different lead pastor. And I began to pray that way. And I begged God to let me leave so the church could get a better kind of pastor. And as I was having my devotions one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me out of 2 Corinthians. This is what it says. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to please take it away from me. Boy, did that ever speak to me because I was pleading with the Lord. Please, Lord, help me with my weakness. Why don't you, give, why don't you strengthen it? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what, church? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my, what, church? Weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am, what? Then I am there it is. I was absolutely stunned. I sat in my devotion time and wept over this passage. You see, my weaknesses have kept me close to God all these years. 
depending on his spirit to work the impossible through me. That's what makes me strong. That's what makes you strong. You can only accomplish something in Christ's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't change without the Spirit. You can't accomplish anything in the, in the kingdom without his Spirit. You can't do anything apart from his Spirit because the Spirit is God. And you know what? I love him for that. Uh, Chris and I were having a little discussion in my office uh, just the other day. And we got into this discussion about, <laughs> I said this, and he, he said something very similar to it, but I said, the older I get, the more I realize that it hasn't been me. The older I get, the more I realize it has never been me. Yes, do we have to, do we have to give ourselves, be available? Yes. But all along, he's been setting things up and doing things that are impossible. And then Chris added this. He said, that's why Revelation says, at the end, we'll take our crowns and cast them at his feet. Amen? Because it was him all along. <laughs> Isn't it true, church? It was him all along. Here's what I would suggest. Attend an Empower Ministers retreat to learn more, to practice, and to experience the refilling of the Holy Spirit. The next one is May 13th and 14th. Note this, the Set Free Retreat is a prerequisite for the Empower retreat because you have to deal with sin before you can be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that true? <laughs> Scriptures teach that. And, uh, and so uh, let me encourage you in that matter. And Cell leaders, let me talk to you in cells. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Regularly, take time aside to take your cell in an exercise of being refilled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to just do it at the Empower. You can do it in your cells. You can do it in your home. I don't know if there's a day that goes by that I pray and ask the Holy Spirit for a fresh refilling. We need him that much. Amen. Amen? Father, thank you. We've honored the third person of the Trinity today, the person of the Holy Spirit. And we say to you, Father, thank you for the promise given in the Old Testament that you give them to us. Many, many of us have experienced it and we worship you because of it. And even though we haven't reached heaven yet, already in our hearts, many of us have begun to cast our crowns before you because we realize it's been you all along, all along. Thank you that you didn't leave or forsake us, but 
that you in the person of the Spirit drew near by coming within us. So we welcome you. We tell you we love you and we worship you and we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.